Hey y'all, this is Micah. I just wanted to drop a note in at the beginning here. This episode was recorded before the protests of the last few weeks, which is why it doesn't come up. The Stud Collective thinks the protests are inspiring and beautiful, and we are excited for the change that they hopefully bring. We can't stop thinking of the black people who have been hurt, abused, and murdered by police, sheriffs, judges, correctional officers, and frankly, the whole system especially our black trans brothers and sisters. This shit has gone on for way too long and we need to take a stand now. We have been making donations to local and national organizations and using our weekly show Drag Alive as a platform to share information and resources. We hope that you find a way to participate and create the change we need to see to the best of your abilities. We hope you enjoy this episode and wish you all the best of health and safety. I never know how much I'm supposed to envy or like the past or idealize the past either. Cause it's like, think of all the conversations we're just having now about like body shaming, representation, like self-segregation amongst like racial and sexual lines. The 70s sound like a bunch of unchecked, shitty white dudes going fucking bonkers. I don't believe, (laughs) sometimes I don't believe in this like full narrative of just like liberation just because it was the past and it's not privy to us. So I'm always trying to like, I'm always trying to get to the bottom of like, um, what the, what exactly does the past sound like to me or seem like to me? Hi everyone, this is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore, but you can call me Vivi. Welcome to the Stud Stories podcast. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. And through stories about the stud, we talk about queer history in San Francisco, and also a little bit more broadly, nationally and internationally. We're going to talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started this podcast when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. This podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I'd say, the stud was founded in 1966 and that's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers. This is a bit weird or hard, but this episode is the first episode of our podcast to be released since we made an announcement that the stud bar is leaving its location at 399 9th Street. The stud moved to 399 9th Street in 1987 which is where it survived the AIDS epidemic. Many bars and nightclubs closed down. The patrons, the DJs, the workers were dying, but the stud persisted and survived. We're closing now because while social distancing is in place, we cannot earn an income. And without earning an income, we cannot pay our bills. And without paying our bills, we take on a lot of debt. Our lease was up at the end of the year And we knew that if we accrued more and more debt, it would make it harder and harder to move and invest in a new space. 
It was a really tough decision for all of us. We will continue. We will find a new home for the stud. The stud collective, which formed three years ago to save the stud from raising rents in San Francisco, made a commitment to ourselves that the stud would stay open for at least 50 more years. And we plan to make good on that promise as best we can. And we look forward to opening our new location when we can, safely, and welcoming our community to a new home and to continue the stud's legacy, a legacy of being a place for the gathering of many different types of people, people who want to have fun and celebrate, a place where you might be surprised by the music you hear on the dance floor, the performances you see on the stage, and where that surprise might lead to new adventures or maybe just an amazing night out. I'm really excited about this episode. We talk about Larry LaRue, who was allegedly the first DJ in San Francisco to play punk and new wave music in a bar, not just a gay bar, in any bar. We have a wonderful conversation with John Cartwright, an owner at the Stud Bar currently, and Brontez, an artist in San Francisco who wears many hats, as you'll find out. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I am here with our two guests today. We have Brontez Purnell and John fucking Cartwright. And on this podcast, we have people introduce themselves. So, Brontes, tell me who you are. Tell our listeners who you are. Um, hello, my name is Brontes Purnell. I am a Cancer double Sagittarius. My pronouns are auntie. Um, I am a local writer, performance artist, and musician. And I've been a barfly at the stud since 2002. And John fucking Cartwright, tell us about you. My name is John fucking Cartwright, and I'm an artist and DJ and night, nightlife uh, person. I'm also one of the co-owners of the bar, part of the co-op, and I'm also uh, in the daylight. I'm also an arts worker. So I invited you two to be on this episode because we're talking about Larry LaRue. And Larry LaRue was a DJ at the stud and he came in at a time when disco was super popular and he allegedly, according to him, was the first DJ in San Francisco to play punk rock and new wave at a bar and then also consequentially at a queer bar. So that's the beginning of Larry LaRue's story. It it ends with Larry LaRue dying from AIDS-related illnesses late in the 90s after moving up to Guerneville. And I, I'm saying that now to give a little context to our listeners. If you don't know who Larry LaRue is, you might say to yourself, like, who fucking cares about this dude I haven't heard of? Um, but he was, when he died, he had, was also a reporter for Billboard and was listing his top 10 often um, in their magazine. So he was like an influential, quote unquote, tastemaker. And he came... Influencer. What? An influencer. Yeah. And he came into DJing when um, there weren't many people doing it professionally or or even as a hobby because it was a little more complicated and 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 complex okay i'm gonna start with uh about larry larue and the stud so you all might know that the stud started in 1966 it was across the street from hamburger mary's it was on Folsom street and when it started they only had a jukebox and the jukebox had mostly french rock and roll and sappy ballads in it and at that time George Mason, the owner, would replace the records without changing the listings. So instead, he would put in comedy and opera. So folks would put in something for like French rock and roll, and they would get an opera song. After the jukebox, they programmed tapes. This was the pre-catfish moment. It was the pre-catfish. 
I mean, imagine being at the bar and being like, y'all, I know the song that's gonna make us dance right now. And you put something in and it's something from an opera. Yeah. Ugh, fuck. It's pretty boys in the bandy. <laughs> um, then after the jukes box, they had programmed tapes. And when they took the jukebox out, it was like this major scandal because it was where people would meet. They would go over to the jukebox when someone else was over there, or they'd go over there and stand there, or they'd go ask someone what song they wanted. So it was like a meeting tool, and then it was taken out. And then they had it's like pro- a, the cr- cruisy jukebox. Yeah, the jukey cruisy jukebox. Juicy crook juke. Mm-mm. What? Go on, keep mixing those words together. I'll stop. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you were going a little towards a. Well, I wasn't. Some danger zones. Some artists in rotation. After the jukebox were the Pointer Sisters, Al Green, Eddie Kendricks, Susie Quattro, David Bowie, and songs like Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal. And that was when DJ Chrysler Shelton was the DJ. And he was the first person to not just play disco. Like I said, there was David Bowie in there and Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal. And so he was already diverging from disco at a time when disco was super popular. So LaRue, I don't know where he was born and I don't know when he came to San Francisco, but I do know that he was a he was a janitor at the stud and he was a DJ at Hamburger Mary's. And one day, and Hamburger Mary's in the stud had this like, cool relationship where Hamburger Mary's was the green room for the stud. So Etta James, when she performed at the stud, she was getting dressed in the green room and she was in the green room of Hamburger Mary's and then running across the street to perform. And uh, he was flirting with the DJ at the stud who later became an owner and they were playing pinball and then they were playing a pool game and they made a bet that uh, the loser would get fucked by the other one. I'm assuming fucked by the the winner would own the other one's ass, and Larry Larue lost. Wow, yeah, Larry Larue lost, and he was <laughs> with his partner for 15 years after that. That's the way to get it going. Have you ever played some a game with someone for sex? I don't. I thought you were about to ask, "Have I ever been with anyone for 15 years?" And it's like. <laughs> It's like, no, I haven't. <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> What's the longest you've been with someone, Brontes? <laughs> I think I'm going wow. to my, I'm gonna keep that to myself. Uh, <laughs> it's a little, that's uh, a little, that's a much, that's uh, a lot to say. Um, actually, no, when you date me, I never go away. So, for life, for life. My entire life. You're but, around forever. Uh, damn. Yeah, forever. But then also, <laughs> like, I also just, like, thought about, like, the contract of, like, the part of the contract that says owning your ass. Like, if there was, like, a yeah. check a check mark by it or, like, was there, like, a box, like, ass owned, like. Like, for rich or for poor, I own your ass. I mean... <laughs> I imagine that there was like a blackboard where you write who's playing pool next and they just wrote out the winner shall own the ass of the loser. But oh my god. Wait. I'm not like I'm not a dom like that. I like I think like, I want asses to be free like <laughs> <laughs> But I mean I, it was a different time I guess like Yeah. you guys are acting like this is a crazy proposition between two people at a bar 
cannot. I don't oh know. my god! No, okay. First of all, Micah, Mrs. Fucking First Wave, Second, Fourth, Fifth Wave Feminist. I cannot believe I walked up to you and was like, "Damn, can I own your ass?" Like it would not be like some drama. Like you'd, you'd be like, "Why, why, why do you get to own my ass?" Like what? What does that mean? What's the optics on that? Like I could see that conversation like, like going really far. Yeah, but I could imagine, like, flirting with someone and being like, okay, the loser has to, like, blow the winner. Like, you know, like, if you're already flirting and you're, like, going back and forth about something, there's people who are going for sex. People who are going for sex say weird stuff. (laughs) Is this why people won't let me suck their dick because, like, I just ass as opposed to losing a bet over it? (laughs) <laughs> you need to like you need to have like a complicated game of Uno and be like, oh no, oops, I guess I'll, I owe you a blowjob. <laughs> or like, with one of my roommates just like, oops, didn't pay the rent this month. <laughs> 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 blowjob. I'm just surprised by how pure you both sound right now. Well, we both just got back from Bible study, so this uh, is actually quite a conversation to be having. <laughs> I'm not pure. I just um, got some questions. Like, <laughs> like, why do you own me? That's fucked up. Okay, I mean, owning the ass. I don't. I think. I mean, I think it's just that it was like, okay, who fucks who? You know, maybe. Like even, know. like I'll it's let you stick your game. dick in me for like twelve minutes. I don't know if you can like own it, own it. Like that's a. <laughs> 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 that's a lot for anybody but can't you imagine someone from the 70s be like i own his ass you know what i mean yeah it sounds very like 70s porn whenever someone like talks to me like that like i always just kind of giggle like it's yeah. just like, <laughs> like oh my god so like this kid like the other, not kid, like he was obviously like twenty one or whatever, but he wanted me to do like daddy son role play because I'm slightly older than him, and I had to keep the energy up, and like I hate talking dirty during sex because it's just like so much emotional labor, but I ran out of things to say, and so like in the middle of it, I was just like, I remember when we brought you home from the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's like, he was, yeah, great. I just wanted to (laughs) die on the inside. Like, I was like, fuck. So. That's very funny. And (laughs) I'll leave it about that. Uh, (laughs) um, I already talked about how LaRue was a janitor at the stub before he became a, oh, uh, uh, excuse me. I already talked about how LaRue was a janitor at the stub before he became a DJ um, and I just don't imagine these days that being the career route, you know, like, I feel like everyone's like DJing at home and like practicing on their bleep blop loop. And you I know? feel like if he was the janitor at the stud at that exact moment, he maybe didn't really quite have a career path. Sure. He was DJing at Hamburger Mary's. So he was also, he had a part-time job. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so LaRue was with Jim for 15 years and then they were friends for three years after and then I believe Jim died from AIDS-related illness. Um, so they were together for a really long time. And when Jim died, he left a significant part of the business to Larry LaRue, who then became an owner for just a few years before he got ill. Um, he, LaRue, in an interview with Mark Freeman for the BAR, said that another DJ at the stud had written an article about how rude punk rockers were. So when he was called to replace that DJ, he played punk music, which I thought was kind of like a punk thing to do. Maybe this is the part where we talk about what is punk and what is disco. <laughs> okay, do you know Alvin Orloff? Yes. Uh-uh. Okay, so Alvin, he did that book, Gutter Boys, and he talks about like just being like a gay punk in the Bay Area and New York, um, like late 70s, 80s, or whatever. And he was telling me that like whenever he was dressed like New Wave, like there was some um, some gay bar like in the Castro with like a balcony, and he was like wearing just like a pink shirt, a skinny tie. And just, like, a mod suit. Like, some shit we wouldn't even think was that crazy these days. But he said that, like, the clones, the the clone dudes would, like, spit on him as he was walking by for just, like, looking hella new wave. And I was just like, can you, like, even imagine, like... Yeah. So I guess there was, yeah, there was a lot of, like, there was, like, some fraught with, like, tension moments. But then also, I don't know. Like, um, from everything I can discern, like, identifiers... Identifiers are like a super, super, super... Well, not that identifiers aren't strong now, but like what differentiates what differentiates like a person that's into some type of subcultural moment has become so blurred now because mm-hmm. everybody wears like the signifiers of subculture these days. You know what I mean? Whereas like... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, if every fucking, like, basic white boy in the world literally just got to spit on me. Like, literally, not just emotionally. Like, um... (laughs) How detrimental that would feel. Um... Cause, uh, yeah, because even as you say, he's like a um, like a new wave. He he was a new wave DJ at the stud. Like, in my head, I don't think it really registers, like, what a choice that was at some point. You know what I mean? Like... Because, again, I don't know, us us being latter-day children of the stud, like, we just take, like, alternative music, like, for granted. Right. Or as a given. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I used, even, like, when I used to go to, like, New York and, like, L.A. and the Ots when I first moved to California, and I'd hear Top 40 in a gay bar, like, I was always taken back because, like, nothing nothing we listened to here really played top 40 like tube mm-hmm. state connection like i think most of the bars had in the castro even like had like some like besides badlands maybe had some kind of like esoteric moment with music like and our gay scene is definitely like the like niche music capital i think we're definitely record nerds here I was just going to say, like, yeah, and it's just that, like, that's, like, I never came to the, I came to the stud knowing, like, somewhat at least of, like, the legacy of it being a place that music was whatever. Like, you know, and I'm, I've been here, like, less than both of you, less time than both of you, um, but I came into it knowing that sort of story anyways. 
But John, like Brontes, you were just talking about going to gay bars in different places. And John, I know you grew up in Pittsburgh. What were I came, ga- of, I came of gay age in Pittsburgh. Yeah. What were you were old enough to be taken home from the hospital by Brontes in Pittsburgh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like what the gay music was, what the music was like at the gay bars in Pittsburgh. The gay bars in Pittsburgh were kind of like, I mean, it depended, like, but for the most part, it was just shitty house music that was like what I would imagine, you know, like I've never, there's some of the gay bars in the cash that I've never even been into, like, um, but it's like, I imagine what they play in some of them. Mm -hmm. And also, but when I was living in Pittsburgh, I wasn't going, like, I didn't go to gay bars in Pittsburgh. I hung out with the punks and I went to the, like, there was like a few gay bars that were like old man gay bars or a drag bar here and there, but like. The places that I went in Pittsburgh were places that were like the where the punks were or where the music scene was sort of it wasn't it wasn't so I just so coming I don't know so it's sort of natural that I wound up going towards the stud and places that were alternative of course anyways yeah and Brontes you said something too about like you at first when I was bringing this topic up like you didn't realize like the like how weird it must have been for Larue to start playing new wave and about Orloff getting spit on in the Castro and um. It is, for me, easy to take for granted, too, being in San Francisco. And also, like, Brontes, when you were in Gravy Train, I was living in Pittsburgh, ironically. And um, I, went to a gra- I went to a Gravy Train show where you all were playing at this, like, weird warehousey open collective space. And so, like, I also, like, came up in not mainstream gay scenes. I came up in queer mm-hmm. scenes. Um, and so, it, for me, it's like, of course... Of course he played New Wave. New Wave's better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you play New Wave? But, like, it's because he played New Wave that then I have the scene to go into, you know, 20 years later or 30 years later. Um, and also, and it like, was weird when we were doing that shit even then. Like, <laughs> Say more about that. Well, tell us what Gravy Train is, I guess, for some folks. Um, Gravy Train was, like, this Electro Clash band I was in. Um... When I was a teenager, I was 12 years old, and they kidnapped me, and they forced me to dance on stage in my underwear. Um, Or less. Yeah, totally. Um, But yeah, it was essentially like, um, you know, a lot of it got, there was this movement happening called Electro Clash, you know, um, and it's just like, you know, how people can repackage anything, because realistically, we sounded like the B-52s, like... Gravy Train was more or less like a new wave band. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, even then it was like, you know, it was some it was some pretty weird shit to listen to. Like, it's not anything that you would just like hear like in a gay bar. How as gay as that scene got, like the first gay bars I went to was in Huntsville, Alabama, and I was 17 years old. And um, this older gay dyke, this crazy fucking redneck dyke who loved me, who was, like, my best friend, like, she was like, we're going to get you in this damn bar. So I, like, I would sneak in the kitchen. And, like, the only song I remember there, too, is, like, is that Alice DJ song, Do You Think You're Better <laughs> Off Alone? Like, that was my coming out song. Like, that's the song that was, like, playing, like, Every other time at the gay bar, I swear to God, they played like this 30 minute long version of it one time. Like, (laughs) but even then to think of like, yeah, like if I had heard Gravy Train play in that bar at the time, which was happening, like, I think about a year or two later, that's when I moved to California. 
and join Gravy Train right after that. Um, yeah, if I had heard that fucking playing in that bar, I would be like, what the fuck is happening? Like, it's, but it's like when anything kind of, like, um, when that kind of crossover happens and just, like, lame people you never knew should know about something, know about something. Like, you remember when the gossip kind of got big? Yes. And, like, I used to see the gossip, I remember when the gossip sounded like Bo Diddley. You know what I mean? Like, that first record where they sound, like, straight up like a fucking, like, Honky tonk band when like Bev Ditto was serving you like Ricky Lake from Hairspray, honey, like big ass mm-hmm. bouffant, like that whole moment. And it went on that way for a long time, but then it was like round in the late the late aughts, I guess, like the most random basic faggots in the world would just like in conversation be like, Oh, do you know who Bev Ditto is? And I'm sitting there like, honey, I've been sweating in fucking clubs listening to Bev Ditto since I was 18. Who invited you to the party? But, but yeah, it was weird to see, um, it was weird to see things kind of like cross over, like cross over like that. Because from, from near as I can tell, like mainstream, mainstream gay culture, like mirrors, it's like, it's straight counterparts in so many ways where, like, it does not like sardonic shit. It does not like super weird shit. Like, in fact, you almost have to follow, like, a stricter code of, like, composure and ethics for it to, you know, be seen. Or it's, like, it's overly easy to deviate. You know what I'm saying? Like, like any smidgen of... Any smidgen you move outside of the... like the margin is so like hyper noticeable, mm. you know. Like, I don't know. It's kind of a lot. I don't know. I, I I don't. I also get into like these conversations of like, I never know how much I'm supposed to envy, or like the past or idealize the past either, because it's like everyone like talks about like the 70s and like it being like the heyday of like you know like gay expression and freedom and blah 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 but like think of all the conversations we're just having now about like body shaming representation like self-segregation amongst like racial and sexual lines like the 70s sound like a bunch of unchecked shitty white dudes going fucking bonkers. I don't believe. (laughs) Sometimes I don't believe in this, like, full narrative of just, like, liberation just because it was the past and it's not privy to us. So I'm always trying to, like... I'm always trying to get to the bottom of, like, um, what what exactly does the past sound like to me or seem like to me? You know? But, I don't know, like... But it's still, like, it's still terribly... It's still, I don't know, it's still terribly a lot to think about because, I mean, we definitely, we definitely adhere to way more rules. I mean, what you just said just now really ties to the the story about Orloff being in the Castro and getting spit on for being dressed right. new wave, where it's like, oh, it was so great. And then there's a man standing around probably wearing what you said, like probably a mod suit, some eyeliner or whatever. And then he's all getting think, spit on. But, but to think about, like, how, like, in the 70s, like, this gay boy is getting fucking, like, spit on for wearing a mod suit. Cut to today, you can't see a faggot outside of a mod suit. Like, that's <laughs> all the fuck they know how to wear. Like, it's, like, <laughs> it's kind of bonkers, like. 
Well, and also what you said, Brontes, about signifiers earlier, about like the way you looked, like talking about that story, the way you looked used to kind of describe to people or signal to people the values you had. Um, John and I were talking about something like that earlier today. When someone says to you, I like your look. Oh, yeah. Well, we were sort of, yeah. There's a difference between somebody sort of saying like, um, like, I like your aesthetic, like, in talking about, like, what that, re- like, can sort of represent, which I guess you're sort of saying with signifiers. Like, I like your aesthetic is different than, like, I've had a bunch of, like, older daddies sort of look at me and go, I like your look. And I'm like, well, it's not a look. It's not like, this isn't my outfit for the day. This is what I look like. Because it, it is more of a signifier. Like, I always I wear. <laughs> right, and you see that. It's like, I always wear short shorts and shirts with my titties hanging out. How dare you compliment my aesthetic? Exactly. This is who I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that's something that has changed over time, right? Is that like you used to look, be able to look at someone and say, okay, you're affiliated with punk, for example, because that's on the table here and so you'd be like okay if you're a punk you probably have values that are somewhere around here yeah well and Micah I feel like you and I had a conversation about some people a few years ago where we were talking about this exact same thing too where we were talking about some people and you I remember being sort of like I thought they were kind of like punks and I was like no that guy has like a business job like a daytime business job they that person just dresses like that when they go out. Like, but they, do, it's not, they don't align with the politics that you think that their, like, look sort of, um, that their dress for the evening, like, aligns to. Right, exactly. Which is... No, I'm sorry. No, I can't, I say this all the time. Like, and this is why I try to explain to, like, God, don't let me say the word millennials because I hate it. But, like, I know now that I know people that are significantly younger than me, I have to explain to them all the time, like, no, like, in the late 90s in Alabama, if you saw a boy with blue hair skateboarding in a parking lot, in eight out of ten scenarios, he was someone you were supposed to know. Like, because that's just how... Mm. That's just how rare that signifier was. Whereas today, you see fucking everybody with pastel color hair. These motherfucking young Republicans have taken every goddamn thing from us. <laughs> so you still don't know if that's like, you don't know if that's your friend or not. Like, Yeah. Yeah, and it goes into other things too. There's also like, you know, there's I, I've gone to like bars in the Castro before where everybody's like daddy hunting and these dudes are walking around in their car hearts and they're like Japan, but they're like they're they're Japanese car hearts that are three hundred dollars because they're accountants like, you know, but they're like flaunting a sort of workwear look and you're like, but so there's a dress up. There's a drag. There's drag out there. There's definitely drag. And for everybody talking about like how much like the fucking city has changed, you know, I ain't got an ounce of any of this tech dig. Some, you know, like, wasn't the promise that, like, you were just going to find a, like, you know, like a tech boyfriend. You might not get full insurance, but you'll get the shots when you need them. Like, something was supposed to fucking trickle down, but just, you know, no. Like, no. And I do everything. Like, you know, I sit in, like, the bar. I don't say anything so people don't know how fucking crazy I am. I talk with my eyes. But it's like... (laughs) It's still rough. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you need to put a polo on. Maybe it's you have to dress up. Maybe you need drag. 
All right, well, speaking of signifiers, first of all, like, in a polo, I look like a stuffed fucking sausage. But luckily, I live in the (laughs) Bay Area, and it's, like, the one place where gay men can be fat. So, and with the fucking proliferation of Lizzo, I can't can't lose this body. I gotta capitalize on this body type, like, while it's happening. But, (laughs) fucking... To fully accept myself as beautiful, I lose the right to complain about my oppression, which gives you even more clout. So it's all like a give and take. You know what I mean? Like, I never, I never know where I sit. Um, thank you. I just want to ask you both to just double check your phones are still recording, just in case it's important because I would hate to the. Just my make phone's sure it's still recording. recording, but I have to. Okay. Go, I have to get something really quick. My phone's okay, still. Should recording. we hold for a second? Just one second. Yeah. Right. Okay, first of all, let's talk some shit about John while he's away, right? How fucking dare, how dare that godless whore sit here and be like, how dare daddy compliment me on my aesthetic? It's like, put some fucking clothes on in, bitch. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, you fucking kidding me? Oh, hey, John. Oh, my God. John's back. Wait a second. Yeah, I'm also like, John, you're wealthy and daddy compliments. Just calm down. I'm kidding. Do you know how much I wish a fucking older white man with money would even fucking talk to me? Like, fucking, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Bitch. Come on. <laughs> See, you white boys don't know how to do it. All you got to do is act right, but won't none of y'all do that shit the fuck you all could be millionaires but just like no i'm like an artist like the fuck (laughs) you said your compliment was all wrong (laughs) okay let's let's get back to larry larue for a second (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting to hear you brontos talk about like the 90s being a certain way and the and the like right things time happens things change but like there is always someone who's going to do the next weird thing. And at that time, it was Larry LaRue. And he says of himself, so this is from him. It's not documented anywhere, but he says, we weren't just the first bar to play, first gay bar to play new wave music. We were the first bar of any kind in San Francisco to do that. And it was almost demanded of me. And according to LaRue, Soma was home to a punk slash art scene. And many many folks came to the stud on Sundays because on Sundays, the stud served free spicy spaghetti with their first drink. And that was because uh, if you ate spicy spaghetti, you would buy more drinks. And so a lot, but a lot of folks would just come for the, like a drink and food. And for, serving food for um, Sundays at gay bars happens at an was happening at Anna Charlie's up until very recently as well. Food, food at four. So the patrons were bringing in records to Larry LaRue, who was working there, and he particularly talks about Patti Smith. Um, and so it started with oldies on Sundays after the spaghetti feeds and then punk Mondays. There was still disco at the era, but he'd throw in oldies, Dave Clark Five, the Kinks, the, and the Supremes, or fast stuff, as he called it. Um, so punk nights were Mondays, oldies night were Sundays after the spaghetti feed. And he said that it was really dictated by the neighborhood. And earlier, Brontes, you brought up the Castro and being new wave and getting spit on in the Castro. And it came up in our last episode when we were talking to Honey Mahogany. In the late 70s. In the late 70s. But this is, this is, this is probably around 77. So this is around the same time. And, um, in our last episode, we talked with Honey Mahogany about, uh, 
the Soma aesthetic within drag or like Soma or the difference between the neighborhoods. And so he's very much saying that Soma was a place where the punks were and where the art was. Um, yeah, just that. Well, that's sort of like also like is just from some, a lot of the research that, and like art projects that have like happened around Soma, like as the subject matter at, at Yerba Buena where I work also like, yeah, that's because it was like a post-industrial sort of like, you know, there was a lot of empty print shops and stuff like that. So it was a land of like open open real estate. And that's why a lot of the artists and stuff moved into the space or into the neighborhood. Do you know around when that was, John? Um, I feel like that was like in the 60s and 70s, which is like sort of what sort of had to do with the sort of whole like revitalization of the Yerba Buena neighborhood and stuff like that. I mean, there's there's so much to that you could totally talk about and unpack there but like the history of that neighborhood was that it was like production there were a lot of print shops um or print houses that did a lot of like print print work stuff um and then a lot of automotive garages and stuff like that which we still see all of those automotive garages they're just like sight glass coffee now and like the um i don't know other bars and also though was this before or after the miracle mile like the miracle mile being Folsom street uh, being packed with leather bars I think like during, during that time, during and before a little. Yeah. I'm talking about that. Great. Era, sort cool. Of. Yeah. I just think it's wild that punk night was on Mondays. Like it was known to be punk night. And there's a video of LaRue online that just got shared like last week, this YouTube video. And he was playing, it was new wave. The crowd was new wave. They were wearing like yeah. too much blush. They were like new romantics, new wave. I think this would be maybe a good point to talk about what is punk and new wave and how they relate to each other. And I didn't look it up on purpose. I didn't go read a thing on it on purpose because I wanted to talk to you two about what you think those are and how you would define or classify them. Well, okay. So I know historically, like, the big, like, riff, the biggest riff between punk and new wave is at some point, because you're Gary Floyd from the Dicks, right? I don't know. Well, there's that band, the Dicks, um, super influential punk band, Originally from Texas, but relocated here. Gary Floyd was, like, um, the lead singer. I think eventually did Sister Double Happiness here, too. I used to see Gary Floyd. This was years ago. I used to see Gary Floyd at the Eagle every Sunday. And I was just like, I was like, do you really hate New Wave? And he was like, yeah, like, back then I did. I'm way more tolerant of it now. But there was, like, kind of like this, there was, like, this split because... At the time, Warner Brothers put out this poster, and it had Bugs Bunny in a um, in a leather coat, and then it said, "Don't call it punk, call it new wave," and new wave became like more. Um, I don't know. It did become more watered down, but also the thing about it is, new wave was also a lot more gay. And so what we see in like rock and roll lineages, anything that kind of like anything that kind of moves away from like um, like the white male head, like head emoji, whatever it it putting it at the top, it becomes like um, feminine. It becomes weak. It becomes something to make make fun of. This is also like in the late 70s, too. This is the time where like you know, white rockers were burning disco records. Like, right. you know what I'm exactly. saying? And so New Wave also became like, it be- actually became like like this weird, you know, it says under the, they punks hated New Wave under the guise of commercial commercialism, 
which was going on, but then also New Wave in general led to a lot more faggier shit. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, soft cell, fucking Gary Newman. Like, you know, when Blondie mm-hmm. puts out Heart of Glass and no longer allies with punk, but becomes like, you know, something where... Like, people who like dance music can get a hold of it. And again, New Wave also becomes closer to dance music. Who likes dance music? People of color, gay people. So, like, there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of really, really... um, There's a lot of deep cracks on where punk becomes New Wave and why punk becomes New Wave. Because New Wave does not sit outside of punk either, you know? Like... These options happen because, like, because it's happening. And also, like, you know where else, like, this is so funny, too. This is almost off topic, but you should hear this. So do you remember the movie Crush Groove? No. No. So Crush Groove was this East Coast rap movie at the time that had, like, Curtis Blow, Run DMC, The Fat Boys, like, all these, like, the Beastie Boys, New Edition, all these, like, East Coast people, right? But the love interest in the movie becomes Sheila E. And so you know Sheila E, right? Yeah. Hung out with Prince. Yeah. You know that punk band, The Zeros? There's this punk band called The Zeros. They were supposed to be like the Mexican Ramones. They were from San Diego in the late 70s. This Sheila E's uncle was in that band. Anyway, so in Crush Groove is all these hardcore East Coast rap bands. But then Sheila E gets in there too. And Sheila E's entire band and her entire fan base is basically gay new wavers. And so some years later, Sheila E comes out and she's kind of like... Oh, yeah, like, Crush Groove was one of the... Mer- like, it was really weird. People were really nasty to me in this movie. I didn't get it. But it is particularly weird. Like, you get, ba- you go back and you watch it, and it's like, why is she in this movie? Like, here's a movie about East Coast rap, and then all of a sudden it's like this West Coast New Wave Latina in it, and all her fucking bandmates are like fags. Like, what is going on here? I never noticed... I never knew how far New Wave extended its tentacles into, like, basically everything in culture, like, at that time, too. Like, so it's a really interesting, um... In that movie, are the New Wavers, like, in her friend, like, is her crew sort of, like, vilified in the way that we're talking about? Like, are they like, oh, these fucking weirdos? No, actually, no. Well, she is, because at some point in the movie, like, the guy from Rum DMC is hitting on her, and... Like, it's like, the question is, like, um, Sheila E. Oh, Sheila, not, her name is something else in the movie, but it's like, do you like rap? And she's like, no, I don't like rap. And it's a very weighted thing to say, because let's be honest, like, it's almost, she's like, she's Latina, she's light-skinned, dark-skinned rappers hitting on her. In this way, her being like, I don't like rap is, like, tantamount to her being like, I don't like black people or I don't like this type uh-huh. of boy. And so her friend, who's her manager, sitting behind, beside her and immediately like, oh, it's not that she doesn't like rap. She doesn't, She just hasn't heard good rap. But then, of course, by the end of the movie, she's rapping herself. Right. And, like, right. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, weird. Yeah. But it's definitely, like, no, the people, it's actually what's funny, too, is, like, it's that nothing um, fucked up is happening to the gay new wave element in this movie. Like, it's just like, it's as if they're like, they're a part of this landscape. So it was like a weird thing. I had never know. I watched this movie all the time growing up, but I had never noticed how many gay people were in there. And it was kind of showing this weird cross section of like 
early 80s movies where it's like a rap movie at a time where like rap is like vilified rap is nowhere rap is not on the grammys rap is nothing but here's like this like broadway movie about this musical form that almost has zero represent representation in america outside of major urban cities right then it has these like new wave kids who are just hanging out all through the movie but it's the 80s of course there's like new wave kids and then just like it's a really interesting it's a super interesting document i'm sorry i went off on this tangent but you said new wave and like (laughs) it's like because like new wave is like such a big it's such a big it's such a big umbrella (laughs) how would you just talk about disco well, I think it's cool. I mean, I like, yeah, like Bronte has already brought up the sort of like idea that disco also was vilified as this like not heterosexual, like white male cultural phenomenon, right? Like, and that my understandings of disco are like its roots in um, blacks and like Puerto Ricans and living in New York City, like trying to make their own music and living everywhere, right? Like, but just not... It's not a, a, a white, straight music. Um, I don't know how to describe it, though, but also because I feel like the lines of it have so have are sort of so blurred because I feel like there's, like... Like, I would almost consider, like, right, there's, like, Diana Ross in the Supreme songs that are, like, precursors of disco. Um, and then Diana Ross happens as a disco person. So, um, I don't know. D- disco is orchestral often. It's very dancey it's got high bpms it's um like i'm just trying to think of like characteristics i have that it's four on the floor it is Mm -hmm. uh it can be orchestral so you did look up disco because i wanted to be sure but it's um offbeat hi-hat pattern and syncopated bass but what i was really looking up was the um that like the hatred of disco because that was something I didn't understand, which is that in 1979, there was a DJ, a disc jockey on the radio who created this large event. He was, uh, he was a rock and roll DJ, mostly these like, you know, white, white dude, rock and roll bands. And he didn't like disco. And he had that big demonstration in, at a ball game, white Sox, Mm -hmm. red Sox, white Sox, sports Sports, ball, baseball. Um, and, there were like over 60,000 people showed up. Chicago. It was in Chicago, I it think. It was Chicago. And you could get in for 89 cents or something if you had a disco record. And they burned it. Mm-hmm. I think it was at the intermission, yeah. <laughs> however you talk about this, halftime, whatever. But they didn't get to finish <laughs> the game, I think. Um, yeah, it turned into kind of a yeah, riot, and right? After yeah. that, culturally, I was born a year after that. And I grew up thinking that disco was... N- Having never heard disco, I was like, disco's cheesy. Nobody listens to disco. And I grew up in kind of a punk scene on Long Island, and nobody listened to disco. And then when I came out here to San Francisco, all the boys who looked punk, who I wanted to touch butts with, also listened to disco. (laughs) Well, that's also interesting. Yeah, I feel like culturally, like, it has then also sort of, like, been represented as, like... Um, you know, like there was a disco album of Avita. There was a disco album of the Star Wars theme. There was a disco album of like Disco Christmas. Like, and it's all like taking that highly formulaic. And then I also you think about like the the like about like um oh my god uh, Saturday Night Fever and that sort of the Bee Gees and stuff like that. And that's like what has culturally like come back as or like is represented. I think or at least was when I was growing up as disco. And that a lot of that is cheesy. 
and a lot of it is like really formulaic and I like I I understand why people are like oh, that's awful I don't want to listen to that like sort of um but yeah the, what you're talking about is not it's way more nuanced and it's deeper I mean there's also like crazy stuff that really really blends the new wave worlds and like I think about like Z Records in New York that had like you know, Dr. Buzzard and the original Savannah band, um, and also had, like, Lizzie Mercier Disclo, like, who is just, like, absolutely a new wave person, but also absolutely a disco person, and, like, that record, that, that label, I think, is one of the really, like, important labels of the era of, like, the late 70s and early 80s and so on that really blended the two sort of worlds together. Um, because, I mean, they're this, they're really, they're yeah. the same world. Sort of in, in some well, dan- They're both dance music in a way. I mean, dance music is a large genre, but danceable. Sure. Whatever. I also, like, I feel like most of what... When I moved to the Bay, like, I was a punk. Like, I only played punk music, and I still kind of had, like, this weird... This weird idea of, like, disco music is something that just, like, old gay dudes, like, listen to. Right, but then mm-hmm. I started going to the Tube State Connection at Aunt Charlie's, like, when I was 21. Like, that was, like, the first party I could get into, like, in the city. And then I always kind of took for granted, like, how much knowledge or, like, the really broad base of knowledge, like, that gave me of, like, what disco music actually was. Because my own knowledge of disco music, sorry, um, my own mo- knowledge of disco music did not extend beyond the Rhino Records collection of, like, you know, and of of disco music. And, like, you, you bring up, like, um, Saturday Night Fever and stuff, and it's just like, oh, no wonder I thought I hated disco for so long. Like, this is what it was, like, mm-hmm. giving me. But then just kind of being in that space at Aunt Charlie's and, like, I don't know, hearing that music and... It's fun. What was funny to me is how come, like, it was so easy for me as a kid to, like, go into, like, the biggest black holes in the world with, like, indie rock music or weird shit like that. But, like, I had never thought, like, oh, actually, like, disco makes a lot of sense and there's actually a lot of hits I never, like, or there's so many things to explore there, but... You know, without the real knowledge, like, how do you even get started on something like that? But, like, no. Disco's, like, totally... Totally amazing. And also, let's be real. Like, thing about disco is it's soul-based music. And as it stands at the world we live in now, yeah, they went and burned all those disco records. But these days, you can barely hear rock and roll on the radio any goddamn where. And, like, rock and roll is essentially dead because rock and roll never bothered to hit a reset button or really just kind of come to grips and say sorry for its racist birth, its racist present, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but it's like, you know, but again, like dance music rules the world. And whenever you go to see anything that like associates itself with dance music, you're going to see everybody. You see, like I play in a rock and roll band. I'm in a rock and roll band. And it's like, anytime something has that branding what you're gonna see is a bunch of white dudes in flannels and vans walking around and like i as a person who plays rock and roll would still rather go to a dance night and just see anybody because even after like let's you know after trump became president the optics really changed on like just like oh I just want to see a rock brand and just hang out with a bunch of bros. Like sometimes I'll be playing at the festivals and I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, 
But <laughs> um, I want to go back to the moment when Larry LaRue decided to play punk music. It was in the 70s. Um, it was allegedly around 77. We have this great story from Brontes about how this the Castro was all clones. And I want to go back in time a little bit more to where I started with the stud having this jukebox that was a April Fool's joke, right? Like you didn't know what you were going to get from it. And the stud started at a time when all the bars in that area were were leather clones. They were all leathermen. But within a year, it was full of hair fairies, which is a word for gay hippies. Hair fairy! Mm -hmm. And then it's reported like through a lot of firsthand accounts that soon after, it was also a place where a lot of women went. So the stud was doing this this like little like pocket of queer culture that wasn't being represented other places. And it wasn't... It wasn't a monolithic queer culture that it was representing. It was representing, or rather, becoming a home for. It was an eclectic mix of people coming together in this space who didn't have a larger scene necessarily to go to. You know what I mean? So you had hair fairies mixing with, like, hair fairy faggots, mixing mixing with women, mixing with drag queens, mixing with trans folks and non-binary folks, and also mixing with Leathermen. So it's had this mix going on for a while. Um, And then... It was probably all disco in the Castro or top 40. And then LaRue plays punk music and starts this tradition of the punk Monday nights. Um, And there was a really special Monday night, which was the White Night Riots. Do you guys know about the White Night Riots? Oh, yeah. It was on a Monday. It was on a Monday in 1979, which was punk nights. And so there's this quote from LaRue where he says... Uh, white night, the white nights was one of the most memorable because they all came to party after the riot at city hall. And it just happened to be a Monday. I don't recall anyone bleeding, but there was a lot of slam dancing. I played all the revolutionary music, you know, stones and sex pistols. (laughs) You're revolutionary. That's radical. (laughs) Are you guys being sarcastic? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just, like, when I think of, like, radical revolutionary music, I don't... Wait, what did you say? The Stones and the Sex Pistols? I mean, I don't think... Yeah, that's not what yeah. I, like, think of. Or even music that you would, like, slam dance to, like, um, slam dancing. Um, yeah, so... I, well, the Pistols! The Pistols, for sure. No, to, well, 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 that's what I'm saying, is, like, I don't think of that as, like, something that's crazy. Like, you know, like, um... That that music, but you know, also like the music that I grew up to listening to, like understanding as punk, like really thrashy shit, like where people are screaming and moshing everywhere, like that's not that doesn't exist probably at that moment, at least not as intensely as it does now. So I guess I could, yeah, that's all. I'm just laughing because it's like the Rolling Stones don't make me think about like breaking things. Totally, but also, but they did probably then. Who knows? Right, and also this was in 79, so this was the year of the quote-unquote death of disco, that big event that happened. So it is not disco at all when disco was maybe all the other things that the only thing played at a gay bar, right? Right, it's a total antithesis. Right. But also right. think about the fact, too, that we live in a world where, like, think of all them dudes you see at the Eagle, they just, like, walking around in harnesses and stuff, like... They ain't finna help you fight the police if they have to. No. You know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> I can't even. I cannot even put myself in the headspace of like what what it was like to be around that many people in that moment of civil disobedience. Like, it yeah, it is. It's kind of unfathomable. I, also, yeah. I can see smashing around to the Sex Pistols, the Stones. I don't know. That's that. <laughs> 
But I guess when you drunk and you didn't just lit a police car on fire, you can make anything happen, right? Right. You're like, <laughs> right. You're like this is great. Let's freak out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Oh, my. Also, the stud at that time was, still is, close to City Hall. You know, like a closer walk than uh, the castle. It's true. Well, and, it w- and we're talking about the original location. Yeah, the original right. location on Folsom Street. Yeah, so it's even closer. I mean, it's like a stone's throw. Really. Stones, a rolling stone's throw? Okay, throwing, wow. Wow. A rolling stone's throw. So, LaRue grew in popularity. He was becoming really known all over the city for his DJing, and he was actually exporting his style. He was sending his mixtapes to other bars in Soma and the Castro. And eventually, like I said at the beginning, he became a tastemaker as a writer for Billboard magazine, his top 10 appearing in the magazine often. And he would boast that he would always put queer acts on his list, as well as... um, (laughs) As well as what he called third world sounds, like Ziggy Marley. Wait, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a quote of what LaRue said. So he always put queer acts and third world sounds on his top 10 on Billboard. And th- an example of a third world sound is Ziggy Marley. Okay. Just gonna... <laughs> nothing, nothing about that? Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Move it, yeah. Moving on. Um, but he was basically saying I was trying to make my list uh, queer and full of color. That sounds like. Um, also at punk nights, uh, there was a straight couple who used to do erotic dancing on the dance floor while everyone watched. Um, a French guy and his girlfriend. And then he went away to Montreal a few years later. And when he came back, he had a young boy with him and they did the same exact act. This erotic dancing. Susie Sue would used to come in. When she was in town and play pool at the stud. Do you think anyone asked if they could own her ass? <laughs> I don't think she's... No, no, the, the, the owning of the ass was the pool table. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and then that's really the full story of Larry LaRue. He started as a, as a, as a janitor... He got in a 15-year relationship with who became someone who became a bar owner, and then he started playing punk music because of living being in Soma with the stud. Um, I have a few other quotes, though, that I thought you guys might like to hear. Tell me them. He talks about alcohol. He says, I was an alcoholic, oh, too. Yeah. A strange thing happened when I turned 30, getting old and working at the stud where everyone stayed young. And I asked myself, can I be an old disc jockey? And then I asked myself, can I be an old drunk disc jockey? And the answer to the first one was yes, but not the second. Being old is okay, but being a mess isn't. Well, like, lucky for us, you know, 30 is the, the new 23, so we can be a mess a lot longer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's, I've, I've also, like, the DJ thing, I mean, I don't know. I guess, I wonder, I wonder if there are, like, I'm, you know, like, SF Disco Preservation Society, like, I'm sure there's got to be some recordings of his around that I've even listened. I actually, I know that there are, but I can't, like, think of, like, remembering if he's, like, you know, strongly, like, beat matching or mixing, which I really don't imagine with the type of music we're talking about. But, like, let me just, like, it's not, 
I feel like a lot of people, myself included, like think that they're better DJs when they're drunk, and the answer is also no. How do you not, know? Like, don't do that because because I've first of all, for, I will answer that for myself, but also like I've seen other people do it, and they're just like. And you're like, no, you're at, like, I mean, sure, have a drink or something, chill out, like, but if you're, like, sloshed, it's just not good, it's not a mess. And also, then you're not paying attention to the crowd, and you're not, like, really present in a way that you should be. I mean, he talks a lot in that video that Josh Cheung posted the other week on YouTube, he sort of talks a lot about how he's paying attention to the crowd and seeing if they're feeling what he's playing and moving up and down with the, the music, and if you're fucked up, you're not going to really notice that and pay attention. I actually have that quote, I'll read it right now. Perfect. He says in this documentary, I try to make energy. I look at the crowd on the first song to see if people are dancing or if they're talking. I do requests. I do my favorite song most I do my favorite songs mostly though. I'm basically hired for my own taste. I play whatever I think will be a hit. I try to make hits. For some reason you have to have a top ten. I like to surprise them. Sometimes an oldie from the past will surprise people. A lot of times the beginning of a song will have a pop. It'll make people scream on the dance floor. Any kind of reaction on the dance floor is excellent. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a dynamite fucking last sentence. Anything that happens on the dance floor is good. Is, is what is it? Anything that, no, any reaction good. on the dance floor is excellent. <laughs> Oh, that's a poetry collection. He also says in the documentary that he doesn't always play full songs. So in this quote, he says, sometimes it's just the pop, the beginning of a song that'll make the audience pop, the dancers pop. Um, And it's also a precursor, like he's saying, everyone wants you to have a top 10. And then he goes on to be a writer for Billboard where he has a top 10 listed all the time. Um, How how old was he when he passed? I don't know because I don't know his birth date. I don't know how old he was when he was born. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't know what year he was born. Are you looking it up, John? I couldn't find it. I, There's a sports reporter named Larry LaRue that often comes up. Um, yeah, that's what's but coming so up. So we can, he died in 96, I believe. Does anyone 96. know where he's buried? I haven't been able to find that, that information. Because most of the stuff that we have are quotes from him, or let's assume that he was like, in his 20s when he met when the like he was in his 20s in the like the the early 70s right and then he died in 96 uh there was this other thing he said that i also thought was rad about the 90s in particular he says about the stud he says we're one of the few bars i know who got where people got paid for vacation pay and health insurance that reportedly there were other bars that reportedly fired people if they got sick. These are the things that got to be more important to us as AIDS came up. So in the nineties, the stud was offering health insurance to its, its workers specifically when they were like, as AIDS was on the rise where bars in the neighborhood were firing people. Also having the stud be the first place to employ the first uh, leather bar to employ women first bar in the leather district. Um, a lot of gay men died. And that was actually when there was a surge of female DJs at the stud. It continued with punk nights that became weekly and with uh, more of a female-based crowd. And so Larry LaRue was a precursor to that in playing punk for the first time. And then as gay men passed on, women who were in the punk scene took over, which I think is like a significant moment there again. 
Um, and then he goes on to say this about the 90s, which feels like something we've been saying about the 70s and also when we were younger in the 90s. I don't really care for the yuppie thing that the gay young people have been going through. Gay people have always been leaders, not followers. All this materialism, people showing up in big cars, and they were a lot more serious than we were. They're like college boys from Stanford. Yuppier, closeted stud goers coming from other parties, meaning people who went to the stud who weren't telling their friends they were going to the stud. So yuppier, closeted stud goers coming from other parties, even society people mixing with people who only have enough money for a couple of drinks, if that. We don't see as many art types anymore. Of course, we're selling a lot more Calistoga water these days, which is good. <laughs> yeah, instead of raising another generation of alcoholics like we were. But I'm glad that there are still young people coming out. So this complaint about the nightlife becoming like more watered down seems to have been going on for a while, right? Yes. That's, that's, really, that's really poignant. Like, you can't argue with that. But this was in the 90s that he said this, 94, 95. I, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, like, that's like our grandparents saying things were better in the day. You know, like, it's like, it's, there's a constant, like, nostalgia, especially in American culture, I feel like. I mean, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, so that's why I say that. But, like, it's, you know, I feel like everybody longs for, like, what it was like when they were experiencing it for the first time. Like, it's like, it's a, like the nightlife. It's like a drug. Like, you're not, your first hit's going to be fucking crazy awesome. And then you're like, ah, oh, this isn't as good. And you're chasing it. Like... Um, so I just feel like, you know, I, that it makes sense that he would say that. I mean, also, there was a total profound shift in the culture of the city and in the culture of, like, the queers at the time, you know? Like, I feel like in this, you know, like, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, I mean, people were, well, in the 80s, people were fighting for their lives, but, like, people were fighting to be recognized and to be able to, like, not get fired for just being a faggot, right? Or for being a lesbian or for being whatever that wasn't conforming in this heteronormative way and like but like in the 90s people were like we want to be in the military we want to get married and i just think that like you know that's a profound cultural shift fighting to be like recognized as a human like that should be able to have a job or something like to to fighting for these things that like a lot of the people in the 60s and 70s were like i don't want to fucking get married that's some straight bullshit you know okay well I think we have covered everything about punk and disco for now. I anticipate wanting to have way more conversations about the evolution of music in the queer scene and in the stud and what it meant to people. I know there's a lot of folks out there who probably have a bunch of opinions and we are excited to talk with you about them. So thank you, Brontes, for being here. Yeah, for sure. Love you. Thank you, John, for being here. Thank you, Mike. I own your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Hey, bye. Bye. That was John fucking Cartwright and Brontez Purnell talking about Larry LaRue, punk rock, and disco at the Stud. Thank you all for listening to the Stud Stories. If you like this episode and you want to make sure to hear all the future Stud Stories we have for you, if you liked this episode and want to make sure that you hear all the future Stud Stories we have for you, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really want to support the stud, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get advanced access to some of our episodes, as well as access to our archives, sometimes behind-the-scenes video and audio. To get your very own stud sweatshirt, or to find out about new merch and the other stud updates, visit our website at studsf.com. 
Since we can't party with you in person right now, join us every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. for our weekly virtual drag show. That's at twitch.tv backslash dragalive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Ben McGrath is the production manager. The music from today's episode is by Los Microwaves, a San Francisco-based synth-punk trio who formed in 1979. The song also appears on Josh Cheon's Dark Entries. The song's title is Silent Streamers. Research for this episode was by Chloe Miller, with a lot of help from Mark Freeman. And I'm your host, Vivian Frevermore. Talk to you next time.